Dear friends, the cultural and spiritual significance of Harry Potter for our times cannot be overstated. Today, we're going to spotlight the grand finale of the saga, the end of Book Seven. So, massive spoiler alert if you haven't already read <laughs> *The Deathly Hallows*. But before we begin, I wager that the title of this episode would strike some of you as unusual, considering how much of the conversation around Harry Potter in Christian circles has sort of pivoted around how unChristian and even dangerous it is for the spiritual life. Well, if this is still a genuine roadblock for you, I do highly recommend listening to episode 17 first, where I carefully explore some common objections to Harry Potter. Calling out the misinformation and hearsay, while disseminating fact from fiction about the story and its author. More significantly, episode 17 begins to present why Rowling actually names Christianity as one of the major inspirations behind her epic tale. You're listening to the Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. In 2007, Rowling herself said that the two quotes that most epitomizes the Harry Potter series were the biblical verses found on the gravestones of Harry's parents and Dumbledore's sister. These quotes were verbatim from Matthew 6:21 and 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26, and these were respectively, "Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also," and "The last enemy that shall be destroyed is." Death. Indeed, nothing shouts of Rowling's faith more than the finale of Book Seven, Harry's passion, death, and resurrection. If you like, just as Aslan's sacrifice in Narnia forever blasted away any doubt that the lion was a Christ archetype, so too does Harry's sacrifice and resurrection, in just as profound ways as Narnia, for those who have the eyes to see it. But don't just take my word for it. When J.K. Rowling herself was asked whether she was a Christian by the Vancouver Times, she said, "Yes, I am," which seems to offend the religious right far more than if I said that there was no God. Every time I've been asked if I believe in God, I've said yes because I do. But no one really has gone any more deeply into it than that, and I have to say that does suit me, because if I talk too freely about it. Then the intelligent reader, whether they are ten or sixty, would be able to guess what's coming in the books. In other words, if people knew that she was a Christian before Book Seven was released, they'd be able to guess how the books would end. In other words, love conquering death through resurrection. So, how is Harry Potter's ending so Christian then? Today we'll hone in on three details. First, we'll explore the significance of beheading the serpent Nagini, and specifically the Mother Mary-like role that Lily Potter plays in aiding her son's defeat over evil.、Mm. 
Secondly will be Harry's own passion and death in the Forbidden Forest, facing off to Voldemort. And thirdly, of course, will be his resurrection, and how, like Christ, it was his wielding of mercy and love that ultimately defeats death. Okay, so rather than summarizing the happenings of the story like I do with other Myth Pilgrim episodes, I'll sort of narrate it as we go along these final chapters. Part 1. The Beheading of the Snake Nagini Before we look at Harry himself, let's look at the serpent. Cast your mind back all the way to the fall in Genesis, where God prophesizes that one day, Eve's offspring would crush the head of the serpent. This offspring, of course, was Jesus, who indeed tag-teamed with Mary, the new Eve, to crush Satan once and for all. In the grand story of salvation, Christ remains the chief victor, but not without the humble cooperation of Mother Mary. And this is why in Marian art and statues, she is often depicted standing victorious over a serpent under her heel. Well, this very mother-son prophecy theme thing is echoed in Harry Potter right from page one all the way to the final chapter. In the beginning of Harry Potter, of course, recall how it was Lily Potter's sacrifice that actually saves Harry's life, and that through Harry, this same love eventually destroys the Dark Lord. How? Well, while Voldemort himself is, of course, very serpent-like, you know, from Slytherin, his slitted eyes, he speaks parcel tongue, so on and so forth, this head-crushing motif is captured most profoundly in the beheading of Nagini, the massive pet serpent that followed Voldemort around everywhere. Nagini, if you recall, was the last Horcrux that needed to be destroyed in order to actually vanquish Voldemort. Just as the crushing of the serpent's head in the Bible spelled the end of Satan, the crushing of the serpent's head in Harry Potter spelled the end of Voldemort. But what role does Lily Potter play in his beheading? Recall that the weapon wielded by the very humble Neville Longbottom was actually the Sword of Gryffindor. And who should have led Harry to find this lost sword in the wilderness but a mysterious doe, the Patronus of Lily Potter? Lily provides the weapon that would crush the serpent's head. And while it is true that it was Snape that casted this Patronus, we know that the doe was actually Lily's, whom Snape loved ever since childhood. Lily then becomes the Marian archetype in Harry Potter, whose love for her son aids in the eventual destruction of evil and death. This theme wasn't just abstract theology for J.K. Rowling, for during her darkest, darkest days, battling a broken marriage, emotional abuse, unemployment and depression, she cites how it was her love for little Jessica, her daughter, that provided light enough to persevere through her dementors. I've always mused whether this life-giving, life-saving motherhood theme might just be a reason why Harry Potter resonates so much with our culture. For deep in our secular conscience, entire sections of society may well be deeply ashamed of how it views motherhood, especially that dignity of life coming from within her. Part 2. Harry's passion and death during his final confrontation. So, the Battle of Hogwarts has just taken place and there are countless casualties on either side. 
Harry's passion, you could say, began chapters before, as he wrestled with the truth of Trelawney's prophecy that at the right time he too must die, and that through his death he would bring about the defeat of Voldemort. This was always his fate from the very beginning, and it was known only to Dumbledore and Snape. And so the Gethsemane of Harry begins in the outskirt of the Forbidden Forest. There is a beautiful moment where, just as the angel appeared to comfort Christ in the garden, the spirits of his mother, father, godparent and Lupin appears, offering words of comfort and love. You have been so brave, Lily says. You are nearly there, very close. We are so proud of you, says his father, James. Lupin and Sirius also offer similar words to Harry and promise to be with him till the very end. Strengthened by this promise of a love more powerful than death, Harry then volunteers into the heart of the Forbidden Forest, totally alone, to confront Voldemort. But confront isn't even the right words, for he had no intention to fight, but rather to give his life as a ransom for many. The words of Isaiah spoken about Christ captures this moment well. Like a sheep being led to the slaughter, or a lamb that is silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7. Harry does walk on into the clearing, terrified but resolved. He doesn't even raise his wand in defence when the victorious Voldemort sneers, Harry Potter, the boy who lived, comes to die. Harry gazes straight into his foe's red eyes before Voldemort raises his wand, casts the Avada Kedavra killing spell upon his helpless victim, to which everything then blanks out. When Harry Potter comes to, he is lying naked on the floor of a peculiar setting. It was a whitewashed, slightly mystical recreation of a place familiar to him, King's Cross train station. All is silent around him for a while, and he doesn't detect any other presence. But then, he notices a terrible sound coming from underneath a nearby seat. He sees what Rowling describes as a, quote, small naked child curled on the ground, its skin raw and rough, flayed looking as it lay under a seat where it had been left, unwanted, stuffed out of sight, struggling for breath, end quote. Startled and confused at what was happening before his eyes, Harry then sees his old friend Dumbledore coming towards him across the platform. The conversation that ensues between them is profound indeed and worthy of an entire episode, but the nuggets of this for this episode can be summarised as follows. The ugly creature was a representation of Voldemort's soul that was now dying, having been struck by his own Avada Kedavra curse. Rather than killing Harry per se, the curse had only succeeded in killing the part of Harry's soul that had been wedded to Voldemort's soul from the very beginning, when his original curse had backfired on baby Harry. In Dumbledore's own words, Harry was the horcrux that Voldemort never intended to make, and by striking Harry in the forest, Voldemort had only killed the part of himself in Harry. The actual soul of Harry Potter remained intact, and indeed could resurrect if Harry so desired it to. Okay, so let's pause here for a moment because there is sheer profundity at work. 
First of all, let's not go past the name and place of this scene where Harry dies and resurrects, King's Cross Station. <laughs> We're so used to the name King's Cross because of other associations that we forget that the original context for the name is, of course, Jesus' cross, the King of King's Cross. Hence, of all the gazillion locations J.K. Rowling could have chosen for Harry's death-slash-resurrection limbo, the name King's Cross is not an accident. For when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross, we know that within his soul was laden the curse of our sin. Indeed, Scripture tells us that he had taken sin upon himself, but like Harry's sacrificial death, the soul of Jesus doesn't get destroyed by his sacrifice, Rather, it only destroys our sin, sin which he carried for us. That hideous creature Harry sees in the station, struggling for breath, could be likened to our sin as it was being nailed to the cross, being put to death by death itself. It is the greatest turnaround in human history, the greatest drama, the greatest plot twist, the greatest fairy tale ending. And dear friends, you'd be hard-pressed to find another literary comparison in our culture that captures this gospel ending as profoundly as it is captured in Harry Potter. Part 3. Harry's Resurrection and the Defeat of Evil So eventually Harry does return from this King's Cross Station limbo and Voldemort knows now he is pretty much powerless before him. He tries in vain to taunt Harry about how pathetic he is to think that love could destroy him. Is it love again, he says, his snake face jeering. Dumbledore's favourite solution, love, which he claimed conquered death, though love did not stop him from falling from the tower and, and breaking like old waxwork. Love, which did not prevent me from stamping out your mud-blood mother like a cockroach brother. And yet, nobody seems to love you enough to run forward this time to take my curse. So what would stop you now from dying when I strike?" End quote. We the readers know of course that Voldemort is bluffing and that love does eventually conquer Voldemort. But how? So far we've only been exploring the sort of logic of um, Harry's death and eventual resurrection and paralleling that with Christ. Our exploration wouldn't be complete of course if we didn't dwell on the motive of this sacrifice, love. While this love is apparent in Lily's love for her son, and Snape's love for Lily, and of course Harry's love for his friends venturing out into the forest on their behalf, I'm going to propose that this all-powerful conquering love manifests most profoundly in Harry's mercy towards his three enemies. Mercy, of course, is not a separate virtue to love, but rather love's highest expression, its most perfect expression. For mercy is what love looks like when it gazes upon a sinner. How did Harry exhibit this same mercy? Consider that aside from Voldemort himself, the person who hated Harry most was Draco Malfoy. Yet recall what happened a few chapters earlier in the Room of Requirement, when both he and Draco were caught in the Fiend Fire, a fire which Draco's own goonies had cast. Having found the Horcrux diadem of Ravenclaw and mounted a broomstick to escape, Harry could have then and there just flown out of the room and left Malfoy to perish once and for all in the Fiendfire. Yet, Harry insists to Ron and Hermione that they return to rescue their pathetic, wantless enemies, with Ron even yelling, If we die for them, I'm going to kill you myself. 
and so risking their own lives they dive back into the fiery room to pull out their nearly unconscious enemies and together they just make it out in time. This minor detail may seem insignificant for readers given the war that was breaking out about them, but just like the mercy that Bilbo shows Gollum in The Lord of the Rings, Rowling makes sure that this smallest act of mercy would soon be the undoing of all evil. Because the fact that Harry saved Draco in the castle also meant that he knew that Draco was still alive. This knowledge would in turn inspire Draco's mother, Narcissa Malfoy, to betray Voldemort right under his nose. Recall that when Harry returns from King's Cross Limbo Land, he is still lying on the forest floor looking rather dead. Voldemort, who was terrified of what had just happened, refused to check on Harry himself to see whether he was still alive, and instead sends Narcissa to investigate. She does, and then the following passage ensues. Hands softer than he had been expecting touched Harry's face, pulled back an eyelid, crept beneath his shirt down to his chest and felt his heart. He could hear the woman's fast breathing, her long hair tickled his face. He knew that she could feel the steady pounding of life against his ribs. She whispered, Is Draco alive? Is he in the castle? The whisper was barely audible, her lips were an inch from his ear. Her head bent so low that her long hair shielded his face from the onlookers. Yes, he breathed back. He felt the hand on his chest contract, her nails pierced him. Then it was withdrawn. She sat up. He is dead, Narcissa Malfoy called to the watchers. End quote. Narcissa lies to Voldemort, which in turn buys more time for Harry and his friends to go and kill the snake. So as it turns out, the love between mother and child again proves stronger than Voldemort's evil instincts. <laughs> Thinking Harry dead, the Death Eaters and Voldemort then start cheering and parading the body of Harry about in Hogwarts. Of course, Voldemort doesn't even conceive that Harry was just waiting now for the opportune moment to strike. And the moment that Neville does kill Nagini with the sword, Harry springs back to life. Voldemort then gives the whole taunt about love to Harry, but significantly, even then, the resurrected Harry Potter actually extends mercy towards Voldemort with the hope that he still might repent of his ways. Facing off to one another, Harry addresses Voldemort by his real name, Tom Riddle, and says, quote, You're right, but before you try and kill me, Tom, I'd advise you to think about what you've done. Think and try for some remorse, Tom. To which Voldemort replies, What is this? For of all the things that Harry had said to him, beyond any revelation or taunt, nothing had shocked Voldemort like this. Harry saw his pupils contract to thin slits, saw the skin under his eyes whiten. It's your last chance, said Harry. It's all you've got left. I've seen what you'll become, Tom. Be a man. Try, try for some remorse. You dare, said Voldemort again. Yes, I dare, said Harry. Because Dumbledore's last plan hasn't backfired on me at all. It's backfired on you, Riddle. Voldemort's hand was trembling on the Elder One, and Harry gripped Draco's very tightly. The moment he knew was seconds away. End quote. This staggering mercy of this dialogue not only surprises us readers, it also surprises Voldemort, as Rowling described. 
See, the mercy of Harry Potter is not something that Rowling wanted to keep subtle. Recall how Harry saves another arch enemy, Dudley, from having his soul sucked out by the Death Eaters. In other words, the three people that Harry had the most right to call enemies were all extended mercy. And if such a feature doesn't exhibit Jesus' messianic qualities, I don't know what would. Can you begin to see, dear friends, why many Christian writers are now recognizing Harry Potter as one of the greatest missed evangelization opportunities of the last couple of decades? As it turns out, the book that is most shunned by Christians for decades might just provide the richest language to speak about Christianity. And as we draw close to the end of this episode, spare a thought for J.K. Rowling, as she herself faces a new barrage of persecution, not from Christians this time, but from angry mobs that are more or less anti-Christian in their worldview. Having bravely asserted a rather Christian understanding on gender and the necessary place for defining the sexes, Rowling has been called every horrible name under the sun. Had publishers cut ties with her, loyalties severed, books burned and her reputation cancelled. And yet, for the well-being of those she believes to be most at risk, she is standing her ground. So, if we want to know the heart of young fictional Harry Potter, look to the woman and mother standing today unflinching before the world. For your practical pilgrim reflection, I want to draw your attention to the name Voldemort, which means he who flees death. To Voldemort, death is the worst, most terrifying thing in life, so much so he would literally split his soul to avoid it. In contrast to this, Harry Potter, Snape, Dumbledore, Sirius, are all those who openly embrace death. They are not afraid of death because they have discovered that there are things worth even dying for such as love for one's friends. What about us Christians today? What is our attitude towards death? How might we be trying to create horcruxes to hang on to the illusions of this passing life and in doing so, suffocating our own soul? Instead, what would you be willing to give your life for or to give your life to, knowing that through Jesus, Death is not the finality. (laughs) Just a small reflection to help you on your way, but one that nevertheless lies very much at the heart of following Jesus. And so on that light note, I say goodbye. (laughs) Journey forth, take care and God bless.